Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Well, I am so excited to be here. Can you tell? Uh, it's so great to be in Bakersfield. Who knew that Bakersfield would actually be friendly? Uh, it, it's actually blown me away. Everybody that I've met has been so kind. I'm trying to figure it out. Is it the heat or something that you need each other to survive? I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. And uh, Steve Swartz has been a, a real joy to know. He and I have become friends, and uh, it is a privilege to be here. What a joy for his church to have such an incredible exegete and also an amazing pastor, a man who loves his people, and uh, what a joy that is. Also, what a thrill to be here with Steve Lawson. I mean, uh, he's, uh, he's headed up our, our D-men. Both Steve and I are in the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master Seminary, and Steve's the one who oversees that program, and uh, we're a little bit like, oh boy, we better be good, huh? You know, <laughs> he's, uh, uh, you know, kind of watching us this way. And uh, a long time ago, maybe you didn't know this, that Steve and I were candidating at the same church. And the pulpit committee actually then asked us to fill out a test and to fill it out and kind of turn it in. And the pulpit committee then came to me and to Steve and they said, well, Steve, sorry, we're going to go with Chris. And they said, well, why is that? Well, you both missed one question. And Steve goes, well, I got nine right. Chris got nine right. What's the difference? Well, we're not really evaluating on the numbers that you got right. We're evaluating on how you got it wrong. He says, what do you mean? What can one wrong question make a difference between he and I? Well, the chairman said simply, Chris put down on question number five, I don't know. And Steve put down, neither do I. Uh, and as a result, <laughs> they said, well, yeah, Chris has got the job. That's, none of that's true, by the way. Uh, I did hear that Steve wanted to be a professional wrestler, though, at one point. He is an incredible athlete, and he wanted to call himself the pastor of disaster. Isn't that true? Uh, I am actually thankful for Steve and his impact on my life, and uh, I've been just totally, totally blessed by his influence, and uh, especially in the Doctor of Ministry program, which now I stand no chance of graduating from after my comments. So, but brother, I am thankful for you. Um, I am a pastor. I am driven uh, to uh, teach God's Word verse by verse, uh, seeking the author's intended message. I am driven by God's grace to train and invest in men, and we're blessed to be about that process. And I am driven in another way that you might not know, and so I'm kind of introducing myself to you in that I am a blue-collar son of a a teamster. Uh, I come from very common roots. And somehow in my heritage, uh, there was a sense that I love theology, I love the truth, I love the nuance of theology, I love training men in it, but there's always a Uh, a question that drives me in my own personal study, and that would be, so what? What difference does this make? How does this actually live itself out in our lives? And those statements in the New Testament about not just being a hearer of the word, but a what? A doer drive me and uh, force me to look at the text and say, how would this then live itself out in our lives? And thankfully, that is what Steve asked me to do in this conference, is to basically teach in that manner, which is why the message that you have before you this, this morning is the glory of the Trinity in everyday lives. The glory of the Trinity in everyday lives. And hopefully you have an outline that they handed you and you can track with us as we walk through the scripture together. And uh, let me start by asking this question and making this statement. We need to stop being intimidated by the Trinity. Can I hear an amen to that? We need to stop that. Most believers avoid the Trinity And uh, they they actually seek to talk about God without even mentioning the Trinity. I mean, how can three be one and one be three? That's as 
theologically significant or useful is about asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, there's a sense of, of like, how does this relate? And deep within the Christian psyche, the Trinity is somewhat an awkward irrelevance. It's, uh, as one writer said, the Trinity feels like a wart on our knowledge of God. So as we're talking about the gospel, we talk about God's sovereignty, and we, we talk about the sinfulness of man and our inability to respond, and we talk about what Christ has done, but almost as if we try to avoid the fact of talking about that our salvation, as we heard last night, is actually provided by and initiated by and driven by a triune God. We avoid it. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture. In John 17, Sinclair Ferguson said that we learn most about the Trinity from Jesus Christ right here in this section of Scripture. Verses, uh, actually chapters 13 through 17, just before Christ goes to the cross in the upper room discourse. And these passages force us to stop being intimidated. It's time for us to stand up. It's time for us to boast about who our God is as a triune God. Our beautiful gospel can only come from a triune God. And who is wonderfully Father, Son, and Spirit. And the gospel itself only comes from knowing God as triune. The number one verse preached more than any other verse by the Puritans is John chapter 17, verse 3. Look at it and let me read it out loud. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing the triune God is eternal life, and eternal life is relationship with the triune God. In fact, you'll never know God deeply until you embrace the Trinity. Your knowledge of God will be shallow unless your God is three in one. And yet let me offer this very important warning. To not embrace God as a Trinity is to lose your soul. To try to fully comprehend the Trinity is to lose your mind. But to not know God as a Trinity is to lose your heart. The Trinity is crucial. D. Martin Lane Jones said, The doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. End quote. The Trinity is key to your faith. Therefore, I want to give you four simple points this morning. Four keys to be reminded about who we're talking about when we talk about our great God. Four truths to take home and live by. And we'll start with the most basic, the most fundamental one. And that is number one in your outline, if you're following along. You must know the triune God from the Bible. You must know the triune God from the Bible. From the very beginning of the Scripture, the Trinity is on display in the Scripture. Turn to Genesis 1 if you're not already there. The Old Testament makes a clear declaration that the one true God, the Creator, is a trinity. The trinity is not merely a New Testament truth. At the very beginning, as Moses is introducing the Exodus Israelites to their God and to their roots, Moses makes this dramatic statement at the creation of mankind. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word for God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's used in its plural form. The plural form is often used to extol the greatness of God. It's called a plural of majesty. And it can't be forced in the Old Testament to mean the Trinity. Every time Elohim is used in the plural, it does not describe one God in three persons, but is a Hebrew way of saying our God is amazingly majestic. Elohim. But here in Genesis 126, Elohim is used uniquely. And that in combination with some other grammatical truths. What's happening here, Moses uses two clear grammatical indicators in this context. One, Moses used plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Plural pronouns. That combined with singular verbs clearly confirming here in this context the Trinity is in view and involved in your creation. Now, we all believe in progressive revelation, that as God continued to give revelation, he revealed more and more of himself. So as we jump ahead and we look at what the New Testament says, we see that in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the Word is involved in creation, and Jesus Christ is clearly defined as the Word. We know the Spirit of God is involved in creation because you know Genesis 1-2. It tells us the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so that, plus Elohim, plus Moses using the plural pronouns with singular verbs, proves the Trinity is your creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created you, created the world, created the universe. This is God's plan, the triune God. Throughout the Old Testament... You'll also see the prophets speaking of the Trinity. Isaiah chapter 48, there are many references throughout the prophets which declare the God of the Old Testament is a Trinity. Speaking as the coming Messiah, though, this coming suffering servant here in Isaiah 48, Christ is speaking, and at the very end of the verse, he makes this very definitive statement. Isaiah 48, verse 16, it says, Christ speaking now, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Some believe this is the clearest statement in the Old Testament of a triune God. The Trinity was not a secret, though, in the Old Testament. It may not have been the dominant doctrine, but it is definitely a doctrine taught in Old Testament. Now, if you would turn over to Mark chapter 1, we want to see these things as fleshed out in the Bible itself. And in Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning of Christ's public ministry, the very beginning of his public ministry... Three and a half years long, as Christ is now baptized at the beginning of this, the Scripture shows our God is a trinity. And here we see the three persons of the Godhead. As this gospel, like all of them, seek to extol Christ as God, Mark chapter 1, verse 10 says this, Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit of, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. The Trinity is present as Jesus Christ begins his public ministry. The Lord is physically present and baptized in the water. Then the Spirit in the form of a dove. And by the way, this is the only time the Spirit ever appears in the form of a dove. 
And there's a reason for this. The Jewish mind, in their minds, the dove was associated with sacrifice. It was the most common of the temple sacrifices, pointing to the coming sacrifice of Christ. The Spirit comes upon Christ, not because Christ is any less God, but in His humanity. Christ is being anointed for service and granted strength for ministry by the Spirit. Christ functioned by the Holy Spirit in His earthly ministry. And so He comes upon Christ. And the Father then declares He is pleased with the sacrifice. And those of you who know your Old Testament know that the Father was never pleased with any animal sacrifice, but now He is pleased. He is pleased with the sacrifice. So at the very beginning of the Lord's ministry, we clearly see the Trinity on display. And as Steve said last night, the Trinity is the atlas of biblical doctrine. Turn, if you would, then to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. You want to see this, for as the Lord ends his earthly ministry, Jesus exalts the Trinity What's remarkable about Matthew 28 is that this gospel is intended for a Jewish audience, an audience committed to monotheism, one God. And Matthew concludes his Jewish gospel with the Great Commission, clearly calling God a trinity. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead. Our mission, our purpose is to make disciples according to the Trinity, and in glory to the Trinity. Look again, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In the early days of the church, you have Paul concluding this epistle where the apostle defends his apostleship with a prayer acknowledging all three persons of the Trinity. Listen to Paul's pastoral benediction He says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul clearly affirms the three persons of the triune God, even describes some of their differing roles as Father, Son, and Spirit as he does. Yeah, as you open your eyes to understand our triune God, you begin to see him everywhere. You can go through the prophets and how the Messiah and the Spirit are linked and the Father sending the Spirit. And as you walk through the New Testament, you hear things when Jesus comes, he's sent by the Father. Jesus is born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Jesus conducts his ministry in the power of the Spirit. On the cross, the Father gives his Son to save us. The Son lays down his life for his people in obedience to the Father, but freely on his own accord. We're reconciled to the Father through the death of the Son. The Father raises the Son through the Spirit. The Son is now the mediator between God and humanity. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father. The Spirit applied the work of the Son to our lives, and through the Spirit we're born again. Through the Spirit, through the Father, gives us new life in Christ. We are saved because of the Father's kindness through the rebirth by the Spirit that He poured out on the, uh, to us through His Son. The Trinity is everywhere. Amen? It's everywhere. You must know the God of the Bible as triunity, as a trinity. Spurgeon said this, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect 
and magnify the whole soul of a man as a devoted, earnest, continued investigation of the whole subject of the Trinity. End quote. And you're here. Number two, very briefly, you must know your God as one. You must know your God as one. The true God reveals himself as one in essence. And you're very familiar with this passage. They're about to enter the promised land. They're sitting in the mountains of Moab. Moses is teaching and preaching three sermons. In the very first of these sermons, he preaches the Shema. There, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? One. Paul also declares the true God as one in his instructions to his disciple, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Three persons are one in essence, one in their essential nature. God is only one being. There are not three gods, there is only one God. And yet, there are distinctions between the persons of the Trinity. That's number three in your outline. You must know your God as three. As three. God is one in essence, and yet God is three persons. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, fully God, and yet there's only one God. And they are the same essence, one, and yet function differently, three. Three persons of the Trinity are equal in being and yet subordinate in role. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit function in a unique role and yet one God. The Trinity is not one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. That's modalism. The Trinity is not God the Father as true God who created the Son and the Spirit to function in as his arms to accomplish his will. That's Arianism. The Trinity is not three gods where each person is one-third God. That's tritheism. The Bible is clear, very pointed. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each, listen carefully to these words, fully God, equally God, eternally God, and simultaneously God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each possess a divine equality to avoid Arianism, eternally to avoid thinking of God's nature as created, simultaneously to avoid thinking of God's nature as created and avoiding modalism and fully, he's known as fully, to avoid thinking that any person of the Godhead is only part God like a piece of pie. In essence, each member of the Godhead is identical. In person, each is distinct. And the three persons of the Trinity work together in harmony. Now, there's so much more we could say about each person. But there's a point that you must see as equally amazing, and that is number four in your outline. You must know the triune God as loving, as loving. Turn to 1 John, if you would. 1 John That's between Genesis and Revelation, if you're looking for it. 1 John. 1 John was written so that we might know that we have eternal life. It's written for the assurance of salvation. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Those are extraordinary words. Whoever loves is born of God and knows God. If you do not love, you do not know him. Because you, you cannot know him without becoming like him. You cannot know him without becoming like him. Do you know an older saint who's uniquely someone who radiates the love and joy of Jesus Christ? Do you know someone like that? I hope you do. I do. Imagine that you're invited to go out to lunch with that individual. How do you behave when you're with that very special person who loves the Lord so deeply? Well, let's be honest. You're nicer in their presence, are you not? You don't say harsh things. Now, you do that later, but right in their presence, you don't. When you're with them, you're kinder. That wears off after a bit, but with them, you're sweeter. That's a a finite picture of what your God is like. You cannot know him and be in his presence without starting to become like him. And God is love. And if you know him, you will grow to be more loving. God is love. He is love because he has been loving the other persons of the Trinity in eternity past, and he will be loving the other members of the Trinity in eternity future. God is love. I'm saying God is love because God is a trinity. God for eternity has been loving the other members of the trinity. Now you get a picture of that at the baptism of Christ, right, that we just looked at a little bit ago. You want an illustration of the trinity. Listen, use the baptism of Christ to illustrate the trinity. Stop saying that God is like an egg. Stop saying that God is like ice. Use the baptism. What do you see at the baptism? The Son is in the waters of the Jordan. The heavens are ripped open. The Father declares His love for His Son as the Spirit rests on the Son. This is my beloved Son. And that's what God has been doing. God is like this. He is loving in and of Himself. My beloved Son. God has already been loving for eternity. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. Are you getting this? Let me help you bring it down now. God does not need you. God chose to love us. But he does not need us to love because in his triune nature, he has already been eternally loving. Everything between the Father, Son, and Spirit is perfect unity. And in this perfect unity, the three persons enjoy a perfect love. You see, God has to be a trinity. If God is not a trinity, then he's an eternal being totally absent from the attribute of love because it can't be biblical love unless there's someone to sacrifice for and love. If God is an eternal solitary being all alone, then eternally he does not love because there's no one to love. That's one reason that God and Allah are not the same. And that's why there's zero love in Islam. The essential starting place of Christianity is a God who is three in one, who is marked by a relationship of love. And only in the Trinity is God in relationship. And that relationship is perfect, full, authentic love. God doesn't love you because he needs someone to love him back. No, he truly loves because he has no needs, for he is already a loving God in the persons and the context of the Trinity. The Father has never been lonely. 
The Son has never been lonely. The Spirit has never been lonely. They are perfectly satisfied in God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Our God has life and love and relationship and glory in himself. One author made a connection to C.S. Lewis about this truth. C.S. Lewis captured a truth in his screw tape letters. Screw tape letters are an imagined dialogue between a senior demon and his apprentice demon. And the devil is the perfect example of a single person, solitary God compared to the true God who is a trinity. When people think about God as a horrible dictator who is mean and cruel and ordering us about, they're thinking about the devil. They're imagining the devil, not the triune God. Lewis compared the devil to the loving, living, self-giving, overflowing triune God. And here's what the senior demon, Screwtape, writes about God in this imagined dialogue by C.S. Lewis. Quote, this is what the demon says, One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and all his service being perfect freedom is not, as we demons would gladly believe, mere propaganda. It's an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We demons want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over, end quote. Because God is a trinity, he is self-sufficient, giving, gracious, full of love expressed in the trinity. And when we come in contact with him, we become more loving. One of his most personal moments, Jesus says in Mark fourteen thirty six. listen, he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Christ is so intimate, so loving with his heavenly Father, he calls the Father Abba. It means Daddy. Daddy, an intimate love relationship. And let this move in your hearts. Let this change today. When you are adopted into God's family, when you are born again in Christ, you are now so close to God himself, you call your heavenly father your Abba. In the clearest explanation of soteriology in the scriptures, the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, what? Abba, Father. In clarifying the gospel again in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Turn to John 17 again. When you are in Christ... You're in the Trinitarian love relationship of intimacy. You are now a part of their love for each other. The Father's love overflows to all his children. Again, back in the upper room in the high priestly prayer, the Lord's Prayer, John 17, 26. Listen, I have made your name known so that the love 
which, which you loved me may be in them and I in them. As a child of God, you're caught up in the love of the Trinity. Abba, you are loved as much as the Father loves His Son. You're now a part of His family. As a child of God, you're loved with Trinity love. Jesus says, the love which, with which you loved me. The true God, the biblical God, the triune God is totally at odds with all the other false gods. All the other gods of human imagination. The triune God is vastly different than modern religion. All the fake gods and demonic faiths, all the lesser gods of organized religion are needy. One author has suggesting that looking at the differences between the triune God again and Allah, Allah is best known as the single person God. You do not realize just how different Allah is because he is not triune. See what difference being triune makes. The unsaved will say the God of the Bible and the God of the Koran are the same, and they are so wrong. They are not. I don't know if you knew this. The Koran actually is anti-Trinity. Anti-Trinity. Quoting from the Koran, Say not Trinity. Desist. It is better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him, for our exalted is he above having a son. Even more pointed, the Quran says, Say he, Allah is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten. In the Quran, Allah is being as clear as he can be, this false religion, that he is not father, son, and spirit. He is not triune. He is a different God. He clearly says he is one. Allah is not three. And that difference means that Allah is completely different motivation and character. Think about it. Imagine, I know this is hard, but Allah is God. What is Allah like for eternity and eternity past? Well, as God, before he created anything, he's all by himself. For eternity, Allah existed without anyone to love. That's a huge point. Love for others, clearly not in Allah's heartbeat since Allah spent all eternity with no one to love. No one. The triune God of the Bible, the true God, is completely different. Unlike Allah, what has our God been doing for eternity? Well, Jesus tells you, and he says to the Father in John 17, 24. Look at it. John 17, verse 24. You loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Because our God is triune, our God is a loving God who has been loving for all eternity before we were even created. Our God does not need you to love. He is already loving. He does not need an object to love. He is internally loving. He is love, loving forever, past, present, and future. And this love between the persons of the Trinity is now what you enjoy if you are in Christ. You're brought into the amazing love relationship with already eternally exists between the persons of the Trinity. Wow. Think on that. The love the Father has for the Son is the same love the Father has for each of you as his adopted children. Abba. Aren't you glad you're a Trinitarian? Let's conclude with some thoughts. Letter A, 
the Trinity, elevates your worship. On the back side of your notes, if you're still tracking with me, the Trinity elevates your worship. There are two reasons why you might not have understood everything I taught today. One is that I'm just not a good enough preacher and to make this truth clear, and there is some truth to that. But turn to Romans chapter 11, if you would, please. Romans chapter 11, go there, if you would. And when you do, you'll see the second reason, and this is a shocker, that our triune is bigger than you. Our triune God is more awesome, more incredible, more majestic, downright mind-blowing. Is he not? God does us an incredible blessing by revealing himself and revealing himself, and yet there's so much vastness in his character, he can't reveal everything in such a way that we can actually comprehend it all. God is definitely one who cannot be put in a box. Can I hear an amen to that? You can't put him in a box to be understood. He is definitely beyond our complete understanding. And I love the way the Apostle Paul reacts to these truths. Here he is writing the most amazing truth about God in the book of Romans and our salvation in his letter. And yet it points, he just stops. And he moves from exhortation to adoration. And this is what he does in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How, what, unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the what? Glory forever. Amen. This week, your worship must be elevated as you dwell in a triune God. And your awe towards God must increase tenfold because He is triune. And you're brought into that relationship by His grace. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and letter B in your outline, the Trinity transforms relationships. The Trinity transforms relationships because God in himself has both unity and diversity. It is not surprising that unity and diversity are also found in all relationships. God created relationships. The reason why we have relationships is because God is triune. The Trinity is the basis of relationships with people, in marriage, in submission, in authority, and to God himself. From the very beginning, God created man in his image. One aspect of God's image is relationship and role. And just as the Trinity is in relationship with one another, God's children were designed to be in relationship with one another. We were designed that way. As each person of the Godhead has a unique function and role, so a husband and a wife in marriage will each have a unique function and role. Look at Genesis 126. Again, he said, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then as you look at 1 Corinthians eleven three, he's correcting the Corinthians and he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And what he's saying there as he begins to expand then and talk about how things have been maligned and misused and the roles of women in Corinth. Christ is equal to the Father here. So wives are equal to their husbands. And yet as Christ submits to the Father in the incarnation, at the point of the incarnation, so wives submit to their own husband as head since they are made in the image of the triune God. 
Therefore, we will imitate and emulate the triune God in our relationships. God is the one who created men and women in his own image, and he made people like himself in relationship. This is so lost today. We often, when we think about glorifying God, we think about emulating his character, that God is love and that God is grace. We need to remember that we bring God glory by the way that we treat one another in relationship because God is a relationship, correct? And this is what he's saying. You sometimes ask people, do you glorify God? Oh, yeah, I'm kind, I'm loving. Yeah, but you, you treat your spouse terribly. You, you gossip about others and tear them down. You're unkind to those in leadership. Students, the way you treat your friends either honors God or makes him look bad. You glorify God in your relationships. Marrieds with children, how you behave as a family either maligns God or it magnifies him. Any of you who might be distracted by race, the Trinity demonstrates our God made his children to be one even though we're unique. Isn't that incredible what the gospel can do? Church members, how you treat your Others in your churches either glorifies the triune God or it destroys your witness because you're not pointing to the triune God. If your relationships do not cultivate oneness, unity, that's found within the Godhead. Jesus makes this clear, so clear in that high priestly prayer that the Lord's Prayer, John 17, look at it, verse 11, John 17, 11, Father, Jesus prays, keep them in your name. And the name in which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. When you treat believers badly, you're attacking the Trinity. Three divine persons who exist in relationship. Three divine persons who exist in loving unity and diversity. If you truly know the triune God, your relationships will change. You will become sweeter, more unified, more loving because your desire to imitate God, reflect his relationship, will make you stronger and more intimate with others around you. Don't say that you love God if you are constantly at odds with other Christians. It is actually the perfect oneness of the Trinity which draws us to be one in unity, one heart, one mind, one in marriage, one in relationships. We bring God glory by being like Him, and He is one, a Trinity. And when we are not one, we violate His character. It's the reason why you must never take communion when you are in conflict with another in your local body. That's why Paul calls us and you and I to labor to the point of exhaustion to preserve the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Humble yourself, die to self, give up your rights, walk away from your freedoms, but maintain oneness. You say, Chris, some people are really different, though. This is really tough. There's black, white, yellow, brown racial differences. There's white-collar, blue-collar economic differences. There's homeschool or private school, public school, educational differences. There's people from Southern California, Northwest, East Coast, 
Bakersfield. There's people from the great nation of Texas, cultural differences. But again, the Trinity shows us that we're meant to be different and saved to get along one in the church. The world knows nothing of this. So when they see people from all these backgrounds, all these differences, and yet they're one, they're going, somebody did that. And it brings glory to God. In the Trinity, there are three different unique persons, different roles, and yet they are one. And we're different, we're unique, we're diverse, but we're to be one in Christ, one in faith, one in the Word, one in the Gospel, different but one like the Trinity. And letter C, the Trinity makes your salvation possible. You and I can't be saved without a Trinity. You heard that last night. It's time for us to grow up and grow beyond saying, just accept Jesus in your heart. We need to move beyond that. It's time for you to recognize and affirm and teach that it's only because God is a Trinity that you can be saved. Amen? Yesterday, God saves sinners. Salvation is not merely the Son dying for you. Salvation is the Father in love choosing you before the foundation of the world. Salvation is possible because the Father sent the Son to the cross in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to the propitiation for our sins. It's possible. Salvation is only possible because God judged God on your behalf. It's only possible. God the Father poured out His wrath on God the Son instead of you. Salvation only becomes a reality to you when the Holy Spirit in time regenerates you so you become someone who can trust Christ in faith and turn from sin in repentance. It's the Spirit who causes you, 1 Peter says us, tells us, causes you to be born again. Are you getting it? Last night, you can only be saved because God is a trinity. It was God the Son who not only was sent by the Father, but the Son willingly offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to the Father. It's the Spirit who now makes that sacrifice effective in the life of a Christian. Salvation is only possible because God is a trinity. Quite possibly, you may be someone who has come to realize that you're not a Christian. A Christian is not one who merely stands justified before God, where his sin has fallen on Christ, Christ's righteousness has fallen on him. But a Christian is one who's been regenerated, someone who has been born again. And you begin to read the New Testament, you'll hear statements that articulate that a Christian is one who's willing to do anything for Christ, anything. Hate his father, hate his mother, give up his own life. Sell all he possesses. He's willing, Luke 14. A Christian and that new heart, that born-again heart, is one who wants to follow Christ. They have a heart, Romans 6, 17, that wants to obey. And a genuine Christian is one who worships with his whole life, whole heart, as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. I fear for Sometimes people who come to my church and they know about Christ, they prayed a prayer, they made a decision once, but they are not born again. And if you're here and you're saying, my heart does not cry out to willingly do anything for Christ, to want to follow his word, 
to worship him with my all. Not that you do it perfectly, but you want to. Then maybe you find yourself outside, even though you're in the church. I have a wonderful man, Larry. He goes to our church, the very first police officer in our region. Been going to church for 30 years. He retires. And by God's grace, he'd been going to church all his life. And then, four years ago, he becomes a believer. Been going to church all his life and realized that he was not born again. You could be that person. And if that's the case, we would invite you to respond to the proddings of the Spirit. Admit that you've sinned against God that your sin is so bad God must judge you and cast you into eternal torment and your only hope is to cry out for mercy from God himself who at great cost provided the only way to be saved, the suffering and death of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Ask him, awaken my heart. Ask him so that you can turn from your sin and repentance and in faith today put your entire hope in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the implications of a triune God. Thank you, Lord, that it is you alone who has given us life. And we will praise you for all eternity, for giving us life. And then, by your grace, as a rebellious race of people and as a rebellious individual before you, you cracked open our heart. And you showed us our desperate need to cry out to you. And you gave us new life. And you caused us to be born again. And we will praise you for the work that you have done in choosing us before the foundation of the world and and providing salvation and then through your spirit calling us in time so that we might be your children. And if any are here today who don't know you, please do that work of awakening them so they might cry out and find mercy and grace in you now and forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.